Bibles this morning and turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. I think that's page 1006 in the church Bible. Let's hear the word of God. For since the law has but a shadow of good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices, and offerings, and burnt offerings, and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Heavenly Father, you have given the Holy Spirit, who has in turn given us the great gift of the Holy Scripture through the holy prophets and apostles. Grant that today he might illumine our minds, that he might engage our affections, and that he might move our wills to adjust to your will. For your glory and through Jesus Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. So, back in 2000, the year 2000, as uh, we were moving from one century to another, and various people were giving their observations, one of them, Robert Novak, reflected on the 20th century and said this that it was the worst century that our planet has yet endured. Spectacular achievements in science and technology, obscured by evil, pure and unadorned. A century in which 809 million people died in wars. The numbers are staggering. And of course, then people were reflecting on the new century that was coming up. And as they reflected on it, of course, they could not help but say that there would be more of the same. More people, more greed, more selfishness, more lust, more violence, 
because humanity is in the grip of a mortal illness, a grave and serious condition that is in constant need of being addressed. Now, as Christian people, we do not discount the past. We don't buy into Henry Ford's famous and witty assertion that history is bunk. We believe that history has a place, that the past is not passé, it's not past and gone, that it's not irrelevant. We believe because as readers of Christian Scripture, we have been taught to see that the history of Israel, for example, is part and parcel of the history of the church of God today. In the history of Israel, we find it bristling with the activity of God. That period produced massive works of inspired literature, of a varied kind, law and wisdom, history and prophecy. It gave us names like Moses and Samuel and David and Isaiah, who had a prolific impact. And the religion of Israel was a religion that was aimed at dealing to some degree, perhaps we might say, to managing the problem that we have, we've just identified, the problem behind a century like the 20th century, a problem characterized by the selfishness and greed and the lust and, and the self-centeredness of men and women that we see in ourselves and in the world around us. The, the religion of Israel managed that problem, the sin problem. And Christianity addresses the sin problem too. In other words, the whole history of religion in the Judeo-Christian history has been devoted to dealing with this issue of the broken relationship between God and humanity and the brokenness of the relationships between people and other people. And that's really where we are when we come to chapter 10. For the focus of this chapter is on the law. You can see that at the beginning, for since the law, that he's been referring to that up to this point. Now he's got something else to say about the law. He's not here talking about the moral law, the Ten Commandments. He's talking here about the ceremonial law. It's been all about the way in which the God of Israel is to be worshipped. God has not just said to people, I want you to worship me, go away, put your heads together, have a committee or a small group and come up with some ways in which you think I can be worshipped. No, the God who is there has told us how he should be worshipped. He, he has given us very clear guidelines about how he should be worshipped. He has prescribed the way of worship. And under the old covenant, the way of worshipping was the way of having a worship place, a tabernacle or a temple. Uh, see, people who were authorized to act, the priesthood, and the form of worship involved the sacrifice of animals, uh, the killing of animals instead of the killing of people. Uh, that, if you like, is a summary of the worship of Israel. And that, that way of worship lasted perhaps 1,600 years with a hiccup or two. From Moses to Jesus, that was the way 
of worship. That was the experience of the people to whom this writer is sending this letter. They had come from a Jewish background. That was what they were brought up with. They were quite familiar with the whole sacrificial system of Judaism. But what the writer is saying in this chapter is that there is an imperfection inherent in that law, that is, in the ceremonial law. And that's my first point, the imperfection of the law. You can see he says that through this sacrificial system, no one can be made perfect. There is a fundamental imperfection in the way in which God is worshipped under that regime. Now, that's not to say, by the way, that what you read in the Old Testament of what is referred to here, that way of worshiping God is not a bad thing in itself. It's not a bad thing. In fact, the writer says something positive about it. It says that it is a shadow of good things to come. Now, you think about it for a moment, a shadow. A shadow is not nothing. A shadow is something. A shadow can be significant. It can be meaningful. A shadow can tell you something about whatever the object is that is projecting the shadow. I had this experience, a moment of revelation and insight. I was walking up 17th Street just a few weeks ago, and, and uh, I'd come from the office here, so my mind was not on work anymore. I'd left the building. Elvis had left the building. And I'm walking up 17th Street when I became aware of my shadow. The sun was behind me, and I was casting this shadow before me. And what struck me as I looked at the shadow was this. I looked like my dad. It's a nightmare scenario. I had on, I had on a flat cap like my dad used to wear. The shape of my head looked like the shape of his head. My gait, that is, I was walking at my usual fast pace, overtaking everyone else, skirting around people, missing them by inches, doing the whole thing. That is exactly the way he used to walk. And it reminded me right there of my dad. I'll never wear that cap again uh, because I don't want… I mean, uh, I love my dad, but my dad's my dad. It's not what… I don't want to be like that or, or you know, and he was old. Uh, anyway, <laughs> but the interesting thing is, the interesting thing is, you see, a shadow is, is not nothing. It is something, but it's not the real thing. That's what the author is saying here. You think of it that shadow of myself. Why did it get my attention? Because I recognized the shape of the cap. I recognized the structure of the head, and I recognized the speed of the gait and the way of walking. Those were the things that stood out from the shadow. And these people that lived under the old covenant were told in the way in which they worshipped God, they saw a shadow of something that was going to come. Let me, let me tell you what they saw. They saw that if you were going to come to God, you had to deal with a sacrifice. A sacrifice 
had to be made. They were made every day. If you sinned every day, you made a sacrifice every day. There were the big sacrifices in the great feast days like the Day of Atonement that happened once a year. They knew that it involved death because the wages of sin were death. So there was this, this bloody thing that happened in the worship to remind you that the wage of sin was death, that God had built into His worship the means by which you did not have to die for this week's sin, and that an animal could die in your place. A substitute could die in your place. All of that and the fact that a priest, a priest could act on your behalf and do the business for you, like going to the lawyer and the lawyer doing all the work for you after you've paid him, of course, but doing all the work for you. The priest killed the animal. The priest gave the blood, put the blood on the altar. The priest interceded with you. He acted on your behalf towards God. All of those things they could see from the shadow. But what they could not see, this is what the author is getting to, they could not see the real thing. Here in this uh, translation, it talks about the true form of these realities. They could not see the real thing. You see, a shadow can't do anything. A shadow can't do, can't do this with, with its arms unless you're doing it. A shadow does nothing of itself. It can't carry anything, can't lift anything. It can't go anywhere other than where you're going if it's your shadow. And the Old Testament law, the, the sacrifices of the Old Testament could not accomplish the work in and of themselves. He says, they're not the true form. They're not the object. They're not the substantial object that they were the, that they were the reflection of or the shadow of. And what was this object? He calls it the good things to come. What are these good things? These are the good things that the Apostle Paul is referring to in Ephesians chapter 1 when he talks about every spiritual blessing in Christ. These are the good things that are in the gospel, the promise of eternal life and everlasting glory. These are the good things that were to come. That's not to say there are not other good things, that there are not things that are relatively good things. Relative to other things, they are good things. But these good things to come are absolutely good things. They are absolute things. These are the things that throughout the Old Testament are promised and illustrated and longed for since the very beginning of time. These are the good things that tackle evil head-on, that really subvert the powers of evil. These are the good things that set about the serious business of dealing with the problem of sin within humanity. That's why the Apostle Paul says about the law that these are the shadow of things to come, but the body is Christ. The solid object is Christ. The, rea the real thing is Christ. So what he's saying then is 
that the sacrificial and sacerdotal priestly system, like a shadow, represented. That is, it had the contours that were familiar of the real thing. They gave the right impression of the real thing. But the ultimate reality, that which has dynamic and life and vigor and achievements and value, the real thing, it could not deliver. On the other hand, we can say about the true form that it is the true form. It is the substance itself, the one who casts the shadow. So under the old covenant, there were priests and sacrifices, but there was not our great high priest. And there was not one sacrifice for sin. Hence, the verse talks about them continually being offered. Again, he talks about them going on day after day, or going on every year, verse 3. The very repetition of the sacrifices underlined the fact that they were not complete. They were not perfected, and that they could not sanctify, that is, set someone apart and then begin to transform someone so that sin has less and less of a grip on them. They were temporary. They were never meant to be permanent. Now we ask the question, well, does that mean the believers in the old covenant did not find joy and rest in forgiveness? Yes, they did. In a measure, they did. The sacrifices pointed them to something better that was to come. They pointed them forward. They looked forward to this better thing that could deal with the sin problem. Let me give you an illustration. I think this is a good illustration from the Old Testament. Take the story of David. You'll remember that King David was guilty of two things. He's like the rest of us in all of his life. He was guilty of the sin of adultery and murder. Those two sins, under the old covenant, had no sacrifice. There was no sacrifice to deal with the guilt involved in those two sins. David knew that. David had to live with the effects of that in his family, in his own rule, and so on, the circumstances. He had to deal with that because they just brought on them a whole series of terribly negative events that he basically had to live with. But when he prays in Psalm 51, his concern is not about his circumstances, it's about his relationship with God. And he comes in that prayer, and he talks to God. And he says to God, I need cleansed. I need your cleansing. But there is no sacrifice to provide cleansing for someone who has committed these sins. So he says to God, purge me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. What is he on about? What does he have in view? He uses a word taken from the story of the Exodus. Remember, God decreed that the angel of death was coming and that the firstborn in every home in Egypt 
whether it was Israelite or Egyptian, every home in Egypt, the firstborn would die. But then God made provision. God said, but if you take a lamb and you kill the lamb and you take some hyssop and you dip the hyssop into the blood of the lamb and you dab it on the doorposts and lintel of your house, when the angel of death comes, he will pass over you. Peter, sorry, David, takes that image of the hyssop from the story of the Passover And he says to God, I know that the law does not have any sacrifice that deals with my particular issues, but there is a sacrifice you know of. There is a means that you have in mind. I pray that you would dip the hyssop into the blood of the Lamb that can cleanse me from these sins of adultery and murder, and reconcile me to you. David, you see, as an Old Testament believer, is seeing in the sacrificial system something that is pointing to something more profound that goes far deeper. Wash me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. And as we will see, the sacrifice of Christ As he hung on the cross, as he hung there as the very means by which we could be reconciled to God, as he's hanging there, Gentile men, Roman soldiers who knew and didn't know the Bible, dip some hyssop in some water and they reach it up. They reach the hyssop up to the lips of Jesus on the cross, pointing as it were to him. And in the biblical language, saying with the hyssop, here is, here is the sacrifice that can deal with your sin, David. Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, what is the effect of this, this sacrifice, this better things to come? What is the effect of this? It is to cleanse the consciousness of sin. It is to wash it away, verse 2. It is to perfect those who draw near to God. It is to sanctify those who come to God in this way. It deals with the guilt of sin. It deals with the, the craving, calling guilt in my heart that I've fallen short of God's glory. The realization that there is this great, enormous barrier between me and God, the death of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus removes that, takes away the condemnation, draws me in to that relationship with God. And not only that, but it begins a work to deal not just with the guilt of sin, sin, but the filth of sin in my heart. It begins that deep cleansing that goes right into the very heart of my nature. The blood of Jesus not only reconciles me to God, it goes on cleansing from all unrighteousness. What does it mean to know this cleansing? Well, it means that all the agitation, all the judgment, all the condemnation of my conscience is removed because I am leaning into Christ. I am resting on Christ. I am trusting in the utter accomplishment of His work. 
Now, we believers, we, believers we, we make regular confession of sin. Do we need to do that? Jesus taught us to do it as individuals every day, didn't he, in the Lord's Prayer? He says we are to pray every day for daily pardon as well as for daily bread. When we come together as a church, we confess our sins as a church. But unlike these Old Testament sacrifices, which were, he says in verse 3, a reminder of sins, when we confess our sins and are honest to God as we make our confession, what are we reminded of? Instantly, afterwards, we are reminded of the promises of the gospel. We're reminded that the promise of the gospel is that the Lord Jesus Christ, by His death, cleanses and washes us from our sin. Our confession is, in the words of John Owen, not part of the atonement as it was under the old covenant. The atonement has been accomplished for us by Jesus. Well, this leads them to, to his summary in verse, in verse 4. It is impossible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sin. The sacrificial system of the Old Testament reminded people that the wages of sin is death, reminded people that God had allowed for a commuting of the sentence for you if you took an animal and then the animal died in your place. But there was no reassurance, there was no confidence, there was no sense that you knew that your sins had been dealt with the imperfection of the law. But then this passage goes on to talk about the action of the Trinity. Look at verse 5. He talks about Christ. Christ says these words, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and He is speaking about God, God the Father. We're told about the Father that He takes no pleasure in all the sacrifices and offerings. But one thing we know about the Father is that He has been pleased to act in love and grace and wisdom for us and for our salvation. When we read these words here, and we are enabled to hear, as it were, a conversation in the background between the Son and the Father, we are introduced to the understanding that our salvation is the action of the will of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for our salvation. We call this the pactum salutis, the covenant or the pact of salvation or of redemption. Well, here we have this Trinity then acting inseparably and indivisibly on our behalf. You, you can see this. We, we have a reference to Christ coming into the world. We have a reference to Psalm 40 in that quotation. The words that he speaks, those are the product of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit revealed those words. He communicated those words to the psalmist David. Only the Holy Spirit, we're told, knows the deep things of God. David wrote them, but they were not his words. They were given by the Spirit. 
We're told that those words were the words of the Lord Jesus when he came into the world. Did Jesus actually, actually pronounce these words? The Holy Spirit is here communicating to us in a way we understand. So he puts words on the will of God. He puts a conversation into the will of God. The Holy Spirit is empowering the mind and will and life of the Son. And he's revealing the love of the Son and the love of God to us in this conversation. What does it mean that he came into the world? This is his coming in the flesh. This is his incarnation, his being made flesh, manifest in the flesh. He comes to address the sin question at a deeper level. John Owen says, no sacrifices of the law, not all of them altogether, were a means for the cleansing of sin, suited to the glory of God or the necessities of the souls of men. So here is the action of the Trinity. Look at it. A body you have prepared for me. This is the Son, through the Holy Spirit, talking to the Father. Literally, in the Hebrew, the word is an ear. An ear you have bored. Think of your ear. Don't put your finger in it. Uh, think of your ear. And think of the, the whole, it's that idea, the ear you have bored. God has paid meticulous attention to creating an ear. And in Hebrew idiom, the part is an indicator of the whole. To have an ear, you have to have a body that has an ear. Okay? So the Son is taking our nature in order to express and to act through a human soul in a human body. And there's a double referent here. The ear represents the body, a whole body, with a soul. But it also represents the means by which a creature knows God. We know God by hearing. Faith comes by hearing, and the hearing by the Word of God. Creatures were made, that is, human beings were made, to relate to God by hearing Him, hearing His Word spoken by the prophet, hearing His Word read and proclaimed in the church, hearing God. Let those who have ears to hear, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In other words, in His divine nature, His divine nature alone, it was impossible for the Son to do the will of God as we creatures would do the will of God. He had to become fully human, with a human soul, a human mind, a human will, a human body, a human ear, a human psychology. He had to become fully human so that in His fully human life, without any of his divinity bleeding into his humanity and therefore losing his humanity, or any of his humanity bleeding over into his divinity, thereby losing his divinity, by joining himself, assuming a fully human existence, 
in a fully human existence, without calling into play any of His divine attributes, in a fully human existence, Jesus lives a fully human life in every, every respect, every respect. It was in that human life, in that human nature, prepared for Him by the Father, you see. The Father has gone to all these lengths to prepare a human nature for the Son, in which He might make His soul an offering for sin, as Isaiah says, in which He might offer Himself to God, as Ephesians 5 says. He offered His whole human nature, soul and body, in His substance, in all the faculties and powers that He had. He offered them to God. The mission of the Trinity terminates in the incarnate life and work that Jesus did. But He did not act alone. His coming into the world is described in human terms. It's a a human mutual decision, of course. We're not talking about a mutual decision the way we do it, but, but that's the way it's projected. This is anthropomorphism. The Father proposes and prepares a body all the, the component parts, he thinks of those. He, 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 the, the Holy Spirit forms the body in the womb of the Virgin Mary. The Lord Jesus assumes that holy human nature, makes it his own, so that the Father prepares it, the Spirit actually produces it, and the Son assumes it. John, John Owen Uh, makes this point. He says, there was no distinction of time in these actings, these distinct actings of the holy persons of the Trinity. Just order. In the very same instant, the body was prepared by the Father, wrought in Mary's womb by the Holy Spirit, and assumed by the Son of God. And the actings of the persons, being the actings of the same God at the one and the one human nature, intellect, love, and power, does not differ. The ineffable, indivisible, inseparable God acts, and the actions terminate around the human nature of the Son in and about, and towards. And what was the Son's mission? Here's my third point. We've seen the imperfection of the law. We've seen the the action of the Holy Trinity. What is the mission of the Son? Why did He assume our nature? Well, look at what He says in verse 7. I come to do your will. What's the problem of the world? The problem with the world is the world does not do the will of God. What's my problem? What's your problem day by day? We don't do the will of God. We resist the will of God. There's God's will and there's mine, my will. Jesus came to fulfill all righteousness. 
He came to please the Father. The Father took no pleasure in the sacrifices, but the Father took great pleasure in the Son. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. It was not some kind of cosmic necessity that made the Lord Jesus come into the world. Rather, He wills His will as God, and in His human nature, He wills to obey the will of God. The whole church of God lay in sin, under the wrath of God, with no hope and without God in the world, no prospect of salvation. And the eternal Son, out of infinite love and wisdom and holiness, comes. He takes our nature. He takes our debt. He undertakes our duty. He stands in our place, and He perfectly obeys and performs all that the law demands and endures all the penalty that the law requires. All of it. You can imagine the angels beside themselves. Can't understand everything that's going on, but they're beside themselves in praise, in incredulity, in wonder at what the Son is undertaking. And to us, how remarkable, how wonderful, how wonderful is the Savior's love to me. Does God require my obedience? Yes. Do I give satisfactory obedience to God? No, never. Then how will the law and will of God be met? By Jesus. Jesus fulfilled the will of God by His obedience, by the obedience of His life. His life lived. The beauty of that life the tenderness of that life. Jesus with the little children, Jesus with women, Jesus with the outcast, Jesus with the, with the leper, Jesus with the criminal, Jesus demonstrating the love and the tenderness and care of God for God's creatures. Jesus in His holiness, Jesus in His honesty, Jesus in His spirit, everything that he does, he does within the will of God. But from my perspective, your perspective, he's doing what he did as our substitute, as our representative in our place. He says to John the Baptist, Baptize me. And John says, There's no way it's above my pay grade to baptize you. I know exactly who you are. <laughs> Jesus says, but I have to do this to fulfill all righteousness. I'm not doing this for me. I'm doing it for them. I'm doing it for them. So that when I believe in the Lord Jesus, all of that active obedience of Jesus is credited to the believer. All of the active obedience of Christ on my behalf is credited to my account and I am declared righteous in Him. And what about the broken law that demands my death, demands my penalty, demands hell for me? Jesus experiences hell for me on the cross. He takes my place in the place of punishment. 
and he dies my death, and he endures my punishment so that I might be free of it forever, eternal life, everlasting joy. My dear friends, this morning, this is the most amazing and wonderful thing. The imperfection of the law has been attended to by the action of the Trinity and has been made new by the mission of the Son. And this is the good news of the gospel. This is what makes us get up in the morning. This is the thing that helps us to face the world with all that the world throws at us. This is how we are able to come into the presence of God, not in cringing fear, with no need any longer for sacrifices to kind of somehow or other make a means of getting near to God because the one sacrifice has been made. Do you believe that? Are you resting on the Lord Jesus yourself? Are you trusting in Him? Oh, believer, you, you, you have been, but you've lost sight of it. And as you've lost sight of it, you've lost your joy. It's evaporated. You're like I was in Scotland. The clouds just over my head. No, not much light, damp, miserable, and wanting to be home where it's sunny. But when you get sight of again the gospel of Jesus, the clouds part, the sun shines, and you're home. You're home. Let's pray. Father, we pray that something of the life and light and joy of knowing our Savior Jesus, of knowing sins forgiven, might break upon our minds today, we pray. For Jesus' sake, amen.